Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. Thank you for joining us for this important conversation about white privilege, structural racism, and the dream of America. This topic would be important at any time, but I think it's particularly critical in the current period of political change, highly charged public discourse, killings of unarmed black men and judicial proceedings that don't result in prosecutions, a public rise and prominence of white supremacist groups and hate speech, and a deep split in the U.S. electorate revealing what appear to be very different dreams of America. Our guests tonight bring a wealth of knowledge and personal experience to the discussion of social justice in contemporary society. They are Lauren Glass, a professor in the UI Department of English, just next to me. Thanks, Lauren. Next to him is Jason England, a lecturer in the University of Iowa Department of Rhetoric. Thanks, Jason. And Lalok Rivas is an assistant professor in the University of Iowa Department of Theater Arts. Thanks for being here. Lauren, uh, let me start with you. You're the person who first brought up this topic some months ago, actually, before the election. Uh, you wanted to have a discussion about white privilege and structural racism, and you and the other guests on the program tonight um, clearly had a lot to say at that time. Yeah. Since then, we've had an election, and there are even more thoughts and more comments that I think will come forward this evening. Um, how do we come to terms with the uncertainty and unease that millions of Americans feel at this particular moment, a time when it seems clear to me that there is more than one dream of America? Well, I'm struggling with it, Joan. I'll say I um, originally got the idea to organize a forum like this over the summer um, after what seemed uh, an endless stream of video documentation of innocent, unarmed people of color being killed with impunity by white cops, and I felt that I could and should do more to combat racism in this country. And I wanted to start with the idea of white privilege because I feel very strongly that not enough white people in America even admit that white privilege exists and that you surely cannot solve a problem if the people who constitute it don't admit or acknowledge that it exists. Now, when we first started to organize the panel, I was cautiously optimistic. I thought that Hillary Clinton would be the next president of the United States and that she would build on the legacy of Barack Obama and for all the liabilities of, their, um, of the Democratic uh, establishment and their administrations, um, I felt like things might be uh, improving in this country along the lines of race relations. And uh, like those liberals in that SNL skit, um, I couldn't imagine that a man whose power base was white nationalism would end up in the White House. And um, I realized after that that part of my ignorance, um, my, my surprise that Donald Trump won, was in fact itself a symptom of my own white privilege. In other words, one of the more insidious and powerful elements of white privilege is the privilege to deny or diminish its existence uh, or to refuse to acknowledge um, that it uh, exists. In other words, it was I, since I don't have to suffer from it, since I benefit from it, I can easily ignore its scale and scope and its power. So I uh, want to start here with what I think is an important speech act, which is that I'm a white American. I acknowledge that white privilege exists, not only that white privilege exists, that it existed throughout the history of our country, is at the core of our country's history, really. I acknowledge that I have benefited from it every day in ways small and large over the course of my life. And I want to pledge more of my energy to the struggle against it. And that's why I'm here. That's why I, uh, tried to you know, organize this. Yeah. And what do we mean by structural racism? 
Well, both concepts are most easily understood, it seems to me, in the, con in the context of law enforcement and, uh, and um, the penal system, right? So uh, the easiest way I have to illustrate white privilege is that if I walk out of here and I'm pulled over by a cop, I don't have to worry for my life, whereas these guys would. Um, and if you want to know about structural racism in the larger institutions of law enforcement and the, what's called the prison industrial complex, you can just watch Ava DuVernay's um, recent documentary called 13th, uh, where she documents quite uh, um, vividly and without any possible doubt the way in which the 13th Amendment exception for servitude, if you are convicted of a crime, immediately created a pipeline into the prison system for the recently freed slaves, which has just lived and grown all the way up to now. So uh, structural racism is when institutions in their very structure are biased um, along the lines of race. So it's less about anybody's individual attitudes, although those are important, um, and more about the ways in which most of the institutions in our country are heir to um, white rule. If you look at <laughs> the Senate and the House of um, Representatives throughout American history, you see mostly white faces, um, and that's the way the power structure in this country has, uh, has been since the beginning of the country. Well, now, you mentioned earlier that um, the most important thing preceding the fix yeah. is to acknowledge that there's an issue. That's right. There are lots of people who voted for the winning candidate in this last election who would swear on their lives that they are not racist. Yeah, I, and I've, I've noticed that, you know, we actually had a, a, a woman publicly compare uh, Michelle Obama to an ape and say she wasn't racist. So on some level, on the personal level, there's actually a, uh, a psychological pathology at work. Um, I also think, though, that because the United States is so invested in uh, an idea of itself as colorblind or based inequality, that frequently people get this uh, cognitive dissonance where on, you know, out of one side of their mouth, they'll be blatantly racist or they will endorse white nationalists, white supremacist kinds of candidates and beliefs, but out of the other side of their mouth, they want to say that they're colorblind or they're not racist. And indeed, if I were to <laughs> pinpoint one of the key problems, at least in terms of people's consciousness, uh, this is a little bit different than uh, the institutional level, uh, it's that, it's that denial, that ability that people have to um, be racist out of one side of their mouth and deny it out of the other uh, that needs to, um, that, that is the, the, what we're struggling against. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Jason, I want to move down the line and uh, talk to you a little bit about this. You lecture in the rhetoric department, and I know that you recently wrote a piece called Whiteness in America is a Virus Whose Sole Purpose is Preserving Itself. Uh, tell us what you mean by this and, and what you're trying to say in this article. Oh, that's a difficult one to, to sum up quickly. Um, well, you know, what I mean is that uh, what I believe and what I tell my students in rhetoric is that I don't believe in white people, and I never have. Um, you know, it's a construct. There were some bums who came over from England. Some people joined from Ireland. Some people came from Italy. You know, people migrated from all over, and they got in on this deal. You know, most white populations were not considered white. Um, they were certainly non-black. They were non-other eventually. They came over and they were initially extremely liberal, very humanist populations, uh, who quickly learned uh, the sociopathic dynamic in this country with race, which is the scapegoat, to blame, um, to project onto the minority population their own sins. And this frightens me. Um, the only way that you can explain an ability to talk 
out of your mouth about not being racist while being racist is to break it down for me into sociopathic terms. You know, people who do things, terrible things, and the next day tell you that they didn't do them, and in fact begin to blame you for those things they've done. Certainly on the individual level, you've seen this. Uh, these panels, in fact, scare me. Um, I think about The Wire, which has become almost cliche in faux progressive circles to quote, but uh, you know, there's this moment where the guy says, you know, are we making any progress? What's happening? We're going to do another study about this. And he says, another study about a study? You know? So I'm not always sure at this point what, what purpose these panels serve, because we have to have some sort of honest reckoning with the history of this country. And that's what I meant by whiteness being a virus. This, in, in, in my opinion, I mean, there are a million think pieces about the white working class and you know, what was neglected and economic despair. But this election was a really strong reaffirmation of whiteness as a concept. It was an affirmation of a norm. And I think we got a little too far for the norm. Um, you know, a black president followed by a female who was on the precipice of, of this um, office, um, transgender bathrooms. There wasn't a, a sort of a declaration that we want the norm back. Now, of course, there is no norm. You know, there is nothing that links a white person in Iowa to a white person in Ohio or New York a person of Italian or Finnish descent to a person of Irish descent. This is nonsense, and we know this. Um, but what, what does link them is a pretend innocence, that when you become white in this country, you can claim that you've earned things. You can be ahistorical um, in what you discuss and how you've come to have what you have and why the other people don't have it, don't deserve it. And this frightens me quite a deal. There's one thing that I want to bring up mostly because as a child I loved Cheers. And, um, and we talked about this, Lauren, at George's, and, and uh, you know, Cheers couldn't be a whiter show. I, I think there might have been one black person on Cheers ever. Um, but I thought it was very well written. I thought it was funny. I was also young, so don't blame me. But they had this great moment that I thought of during the election um, where Sam Malone wanted a raise and Rebecca Howe would not give that raise. And Sam went into the office and to save face, he said, well, at least give me a title. You are the senior bartender. Carla was outraged, you know? She runs into the office. I want a raise, there's no money. Give me a title, you are the executive waitress. Woody is like, wait a minute, I'm the only one without a title. He goes in, he gets his title, he comes out, you're looking at the chief senior bartender. And I think a lot of this election was about the wages of whiteness, which is a Du Boisian concept, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with, but the idea that if you can't get any money, if you can't improve your main street in your dying town, if you can't improve your stock in life or your failing marriage or your garbage car, at least you can call someone a terrible term for being gay or black and feel a little better than the next man. And I think Trump did a great job um, of reassuring people that they were in fact white and that it means something in this country. Well, you know, um, we're aware that in the, the uh, popular vote, the, the Clinton tally is two and a half million higher than the Trump tally, but clearly, through the rules of the Electoral College, this election goes to Trump. So looking back at these last eight years with President Obama, so we had an African-American president who tried to talk about race, tried to talk about and make, I think, make some difference um, in terms of the, the, um, the police uh, incidents, shootings, the, the um, actions many of us think were indefensible in this last uh, couple of years. Um, it was, was it just too much to take by the populace that decided to vote for Trump? Oh, you're talking to me? Oh, I thought you moved yeah. on. Oh my God, I can't even begin um, to get into the logic. Uh, Barack Obama was as conciliatory as can be on these issues. 
uh, he barely, uh, he was, he shot away from race at every step. Well, I know he did. He did. But I know he did, but So for that, to, he... to say that that pushed someone too far is an indictment of whomever it pushed to that level. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's quite frightening. So um, it's hard to analyze, and this is what I mean, is that we spend so much time thinking, rationalizing, and trying to explain the inexplicable. Mm -hmm. And when it becomes that inexplicable, when you have to, to parse here and, and, and try to figure out 18 different rationalizations of why someone mm -hmm. is sociopathic, it is time to reckon with the history of this country and understand that we need to heal in a way that I think most people are unwilling to. We talked in one of my classes about Angela Carter's uh, short fiction and this idea she had that a woman is an object to be acted upon, to be desired. And, and that performance of gender, what that does is it means your natural end is to be consumed, to be killed. And the statistics in this society certainly bear that out in terms of what happens to women in society in terms of rape and murder at the hands of their partners. So the question really to reckon with is what does it mean uh, for white nationalism to come to prominence at the expense of facts, truth, economic health, what does that mean in terms of how feared black people are, that you can be killed on tape, that you can have evidence planted upon you, and that a jury still won't convict, um, that someone can shoot you in broad daylight and won't even be held as a prisoner? It means that finally, what we had hoped as black people, what most of the people I know had hoped in my family and in my neighborhoods where I grew up, was that white people simply just didn't understand. They hadn't seen anything. We see it, they don't see it, and of course, that's rational. If you're not there, you, yeah, of course, you, you assume the cops, you know, probably had a reason. But now we had video evidence. And so in the era of video evidence, what we thought was, of course, Hillary will win. Of course, people will realize this is a major problem. And then, in true sociopathic nature, people looked at evidence and said, I still don't believe it. And that is a line to, that when you cross, I don't know I have analysis for. Yeah. At that point, we have to send you to therapy, right? As an individual, if we're talking about an individual, and obviously I'm not talking about every individual white person, but I'm talking about a collective here. Mm -hmm. There's serious mm -hmm. therapy that has to mm -hmm. be undergone. There's a lot of projection. Um, the only thing we're hearing about, even in the press conference for the uh, Joe McKnight, the former NFL yeah. player, was shot. We got a lecture on black on black crime. This is insanity. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Dalalok, um, you're a writer and a director. You create plays. And, um, and I know you work on issues that are diverse, the complex history of Latinos in the United States and so on, and also abroad. And um, in this election, in 2016, it seems that Hispanics, Latinos, voted really in record numbers mm -hmm. and made a big difference in certain states. And not that they are all one, one consistent voice, not that this uh, uh, group of people all voted the same way, but there was, there was a much greater um, turnout, I think, for the Democrats than um, it was hoped for by the Democrats, and, uh, and it, it really came through in many respects. Um, what can you tell us about, the, about how Hispanics voted? Sure. Um, first of all, I just want to acknowledge, because um, I, I am a, a professor in theater, and I, I am going to now quote Hamilton in, in the sense that um, uh, there's a song about the son of Hamilton being killed and uh, the, the observation of, of the country as he is going through the unimaginable. And I think for many people of color, we're going through that right now. Uh, the narrative uh, that was, I, I think for, for many Latinos, especially those of us who are of Mexican descent, including myself, uh, the, the nightmare didn't begin on, you know, post-election, 
It began mid-June 2015 when Trump announced his candidacy. And we were all suddenly labeled drug dealers, rapists, and having a conversation with my parents in which they believed, and this is sort of the title of the program about what is the dream of America, I think they honestly believed that they could leave it in a better place for, for myself and for my, my descendants, and that, was, that feels now suddenly gone. Now, that's not to say that we haven't been through this before. We can certainly learn from the mistakes America has made in, in wars and in the civil rights movement. And hopefully the arc of the universe will prevail towards justice. Um, one thing that did happen in terms of the election and politics and, and the electorate was that it really galvanized our community. I mean, obviously one of the biggest things that, uh, one of the biggest issues that concerns Latinos the most is immigration. Uh, we were already stung by the promises that the, the, the current administration had made regarding immigration reform and seeing eight years go by with nearly any kind of reform happening. Um, so I think we started to figure out we needed to do it ourselves. The dreamers started to do it for themselves. Other organizations like uh, National Council La Raza, LULAC, are now mobilizing. In, in, in terms of myself, I mean, I start, co-founded a, a theater organization that is specifically about how do we reclaim the narrative of Latinos on our stages, in our stories, uh, without it having been you know, reduced to stereotypes. And so these little micro actions have been quite uh, uh, heartening for me. At the same time, we are also electorate divided, and it's divided because of the way that the immigration system is broken, which is we have a wet foot, dry foot policy for Cuban Americans. We have American citizenship for Puerto Ricans. And yet those, those, uh, those uh, entitlements are not uh, extended for other Latin American countries, particularly uh, other uh, immigrants from other Latin American countries, particularly Mexican Americans. And uh, it is, uh, it's baffling because 93% of Latinos are born in the US, which means they're automatically citizens. So what we're really talking about in terms of the scapegoating and uh, in, in terms of the xenophobia is really just a tiny majority. And, but this is, a, this is a system, this is a, this is a, uh, a, comp a complexity that has been intended to divide Latinos in very different voting blocks, starting with Reagan's quip about, uh, you know, Latinos are Republican voters, they just don't know it yet. Uh, and of course, the conservative Cuban American community who have been, you know, basically there's been a quid pro quo in terms of like getting their support in order to maintain this embargo and policy against Castro, which is now completely changed as well. So there's a lot, there's a lot of fluidity but what's really, uh, I, I mean, hopefully for me, that the galvanization will continue, that the fact that there are uh, 800,000 Latinos turning 18 every, every year that will become voters, we will become uh, at 19% of the electorate, uh, electorate by 2020. Um, so the problem in terms of the way, why didn't the Latino vote uh, influence the election more, well, it's because 
Many of us are still concentrated in Florida, in California, and Texas. But there is a dispersion happening. And the dispersion is also including you know, immigrants who are also moving to the Midwest. So it's, it, it will, ch you know, change is kind of slow, but at the same time, we're seeing more and more immigration to uh, the Midwest and other countries where there's going to be more political clout in states like Colorado, North Carolina, and also you've already seen with Nevada. Uh, is race experienced in the same way by blacks and Latinos in this country? No, but that's not to say that it doesn't <coughs> include both. You know, we, we are the merging of the indigenous and the European. And at the same time, like we, we, we have a unique understanding of the complexities of race within our ethnicity. Uh, even I, I, uh, one of my mentors, Luis Valdez, who's a founder of a theater company in California, El Teatro Campesino, said, the term Latino may not exist in 20 years. We will become something else. We are the new Americans. Uh, and this has been something that has been gestating for, uh, for many decades. And, you know, the only difference between myself and, and a Latino from, from uh, the Dominican Republic or uh, a Latino from, uh, you know, Brazil is a boat stop. We are all connected in that, out of that transmigration from Africa to the, to the Indies, to, to, the, uh, to the Americas. Um, and we're finding, I am happy to see that we're finding coalitions, we're finding um, ways to kind of reconnect with each other because we have shared values, we have a shared language, we have shared culture in music, in art. And we're finally seeing that sprout up in different communities all over the country. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping that that connection continues and that it flourishes towards a movement of some, uh, you know, towards hopefully a change in four years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the last couple of minutes we have here, this goes to anybody who feels like answering. What can be done to push a more a more race-neutral kind of future, a less uh, bigoted kind of future? I mean, what, what can be done? What needs to be done? From, from the point of view of activists or government or whomever. You, you want it? I, <laughs> I, I actually came with a little list because I didn't want people to feel too much despair. Uh, there's certainly um, lots that people can read and study if they need to know more about the history of racial injustice um, in the United States. Uh, in, in addition to Ava, Ava, Dumais, Ava DuVernay's um, movie, there's, uh, of course, The New Jim Crow about the prison industrial complex is a book called White Rage. Um, there are a number of local groups. There's Stand Up for Racial Justice right here, which is um, doing a lot of good stuff to monitor um, police violence, to look into the uh, um, racial biases in the, in the school. There's a local NAACP uh, chapter. Uh, there are also workshops that are for university people that are um, to uh, teach about diversity and People could have certain reservations about them, but there are a lot of useful tools uh, there. But I want to comment just in a little bit of a broader way, because what, what Playlock said um, reinforces the, the fact that the demographics are actually moving in a more multicultural, diverse direction. Mm -hmm. And I think um, if folks can um, 
really keep their eyes on the ball in terms of the elements of structural racism that are militating against that. In particular, voting suppression, voting access. I actually don't think Trump really won the election, to tell you the truth. Um, and I think that uh, the Republican Party for the last 20 years uh, has been manipulating a lot of these states in order to suppress uh, the votes of the people who you know, would have uh, voted for Hillary Clinton if they'd had working voting machines or access to voting or whatever. So uh, that, and I think the other um, really scary development that we talked about a little before this is the bifurcation of the media world. Um, we used to at least have, I don't know, one newscaster that we all saw, and there was some sense of common, you know, American source of whatever, how, you know, whatever its biases were. Um, we've now siloed off whole portions of the population into completely fact-free uh, media. Now, exactly how we're going to battle that, um, you know, out in the capillaries of the internet and everything, um, I, I know that there are, you know, there are lots of people in the struggle, and the struggle is ongoing, and, you know, there are things that people can do. It's hard to be optimistic right now. I have to say it's really a struggle. And I have a lot of friends who are struggling with despair. And I, you know, I mean, I, I, despair doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> just, to, just to piggy off of what you just said, which is this, uh, it is almost impossible to trust the media now because there's so much deflection and outrage and fake sites and people who are trying behind the scenes to really manipulate what you hear and what you see. So it, I, it's a lot of hard work, but I think doing the research in terms of where you can get credible news resource, uh, sources uh, regarding incidents, uh, especially in terms of racial injustice, is important. And the other thing I want to say, because I'm really selfish about the arts, because that's what I do, and is to support artists of color. When I, and what I mean by that is like, go see films like Moonlight. Go see um, uh, Birth of a Nation. Go see uh, other films that, that are written, produced, financed by artists of color. Um, it is uh, vitally important that those stories continue to be told because that, the, I think the main way to reach the mainstream is that people see these works that give humanity, that give voice, that give dimension to people of color, Latinos, African Americans, Asian Americans, that they're not just sidekicks, that they're not just bit players, they're not just background, but that they have names, that they have voices, that they have lives, uh, because that has been the dominant narrative of most Western drama, uh, and part of what I do is to, to fight against that tide. So, and that includes not only supporting films and theater, but also buying or, you know, voting with your wallet. Mm -hmm. Supporting businesses that are predominantly uh, owned by people of color as well, so. I'm, I'm gonna say, can, yeah. yeah, go see those things. And don't just go see those movies. Doesn't matter. I'm, I'm really, what, what, what really makes me really tired is how much my white friends wanna feel like they're good white people. Sure, they're decent white people by the legions, and the civil rights movement doesn't happen, abolition doesn't happen without that, right? But I'm really tired of seeing people crying on Facebook, endlessly. I cried for three hours, I don't give a damn. There has to be a sense of urgency, the collective, something about American culture. Capitalism, I have no problem with. Individualism, I have no problem with, but there can't be individualism without the collective. There can't be capitalism without a society. So what is happening to people in broad daylight and on camera, that will happen to you eventually. 
there has to be a sense that you don't just watch that and say, I feel bad about that. And I want to tell my black friend, I feel bad about that and I support you. There has to be action beyond that. Because I know how comfortable you feel because I feel comfortable too. I grew up homeless. I've lived in a housing project. I'm way away from that. I got a backyard. It feels real good. I get a latte in the morning. Or sometimes I make my own coffee and my Bialetti. Feels great. That doesn't mean that the stuff happening in my family's not happening because I have a sense of comfort. And that doesn't mean that someone won't storm into my house and take my Bialetti away and take me away with it eventually. And you have to understand that. It is not enough to feel. It is not enough to talk. It is not enough to go to film scene and see Moonlight and talk to me about it. That's not helping anybody. You have to understand these are urgent issues and there has to be some action. I'm not sure how we create that movement because I know that the left because I'm part of it, and I've been around it, and I went to Wesleyan, I know we love slogans, and I know we love petitions and signs, but it has to go beyond that, because we're talking to ourselves at this point. It's not just fake news. It's that there's a whole channel of news that has shut us out. There are no voices. And then our side of the news is so compromising to an absurd fault. You know, we are starting at such an extreme point that when we find the middle, we're still in absurdity. I don't know what to do about that, but I know people need to take it a lot more seriously than, than they do. James Baldwin had this thing he said. He said that what a person thinks about you, nine out of 10 times will tell you about the person. It's an oblique confession. So right now what I feel is that I'm living in a nation of savages. All right, I feel like I'm living in a nation of white N-words because I know that ain't me. So I'm trying to figure out all of these things that are being projected onto me, what they're really telling me about the majority population right now, and it's scaring me. And it should scare the majority population because I know I wouldn't want anyone associated with me to be called that. I would want to distance myself. I think we're in a fight for this country's soul. And this is not a white soul or a black soul or a Latino soul, Asian soul. But we're in a fight for this country's soul. And we're going to see what we're about as a people, right? Doesn't mean coming to these things. That's part of it. But it's got to translate to action outside of it. It has to. We can't clap for each other. That's over. <laughs> so we have to end uh, this segment, but I'm, I'm so grateful to have had you guys here. Lauren Glass, you'll be in our next segment as well. Jason England, thank you very much for being thank here. And also Tlala Krivas, uh, thank you. Um, please stay with us for the second segment of this three-part program. We're going to be looking at more examples of white privilege and structural racism with a focus on the history of white supremacism in the U.S. as well as the language of oppression. All World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum in Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series called White Privilege, Structural Racism, and the Dream of America. In this program we're asking, what does the American dream look like to you and to your neighbor? And how does your life experience compare with someone who comes from a different ethnic background, a different economic class, a different religion? As we know, these questions have been at the heart of the 2016 political debate, but their roots are as deep and tangled as the history of America. With a closely divided electorate, highly charged rhetoric, and unaccountable social media messaging, 
The chasm in understanding can seem all but infinite. It leaves us asking, whose dream is it anyway? In this part of the program, we're going to look at some specific examples of white privilege and structural racism and discuss efforts to address contemporary problems. I'm pleased to introduce Deborah Whaley, who's next to me on stage. She's an associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of American Studies. Thank you, Deborah. And next to her is Rachel Williams, associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies, also the UI School of Art and Art History. And Lauren Glass, uh, you met in the first segment. He's a professor in the University of Iowa Department of English. Uh, Deborah, you and Lauren uh, penned a passionate commentary that recently appeared in the Iowa City Press Citizen and, and I'm sure got a lot of people thinking about these issues. You said the two currently predominant dreams of America are one, a white nationalist dream that is really a nightmare, and two, a dream of a multi-ethnic democracy which thrives because of the diversity of its citizenry. Is this what you see in the results of the November election? I think it goes beyond the election itself. I think the dream of America and different perceptions of what it means to thrive and, and prosper, prosper and have equality has been going on since um, the beginning of time. And one of the things I'm trying to be careful with is not to act as if this election started something that wasn't necessarily there before, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways, some things are sort of coming to the foreway in terms of um, discrimination, uh, et cetera, that some people have not seen before, um, but it's always been here, right? Mm -hmm. So one of, the one of the things we try to do in the op-ed is to sort of think about this idea of America, um, the dream of America, and um, the different things that um, people want to achieve in their lives, sometimes it's shared and sometimes it's not shared, um, but we all don't have the same access to that dream. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we tried to bring out in our commentary that we published in the Press Citizen last week. And so I think the general dream of America is equality, um, to work hard, again, to prosper, to have access to education, to be able to make a living. Uh, and so I think that's just sort of the general dream of America. Um, but in terms of talking about two dreams that sort of predominate, was more so talking about a, um, uh, a dream that's more self-focused, um, that's not sort of looking outside of the self and trying to create equality and all those things that go into the dream for everyone more so just thinking about um, yourself sort of prospering and, and that being a problem. And um, we really do need to build these coalitions and, and come together so we all can have equal access um, to the things that helps us survive and, and thrive in this society uh, while we're helping others. Mm -hmm. uh, Lauren, as the co-author, is there anything you'd like to add to what Deborah just said? I, I just want to say how productive it was to work with Deborah on the um, on the op-ed, uh, and it really felt like a, a tiny triumph just um, for us to successfully collaborate and find common ground and agree. And I want to say that the, the one point, it wasn't exactly of disagreement, but one point that was a real 
a revelation for me that, that I uh, mentioned when I, when I opened the last segment. Um, I, we each wrote our own, a little bit of our own thing first, and I wrote about expecting that Hillary Clinton would win the election. And then when we revised it, Deborah changed it to one of us expected that Hillary Clinton <laughs> would win the election. And for me, that was a, a, a hugely revelatory moment about what it means to be a white liberal in particular in this country, and what we in particular have been blind to in terms of the pervasiveness of this kind of white nationalist ethos that obviously preceded Donald Trump. He was just able to um, exploit it and, 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 and ride it um, uh, to, the, to the White House. But um, that was a revelatory moment for, uh, for me. And um, you know, it was productive for us to be able to um, say this together. I, 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 one other uh, uh, elaboration on it, and then I'll be quiet. They, um, I think that the challenge of the American dream is that it's one of the few nations that wants to have a citizenry that is not based on some sense of uh, racial solidarity, right? The nation state has these fantasies built in uh, across the, the world, and we actually see them, um, uh, each one struggling with its own um, uh, version of it. So um, uh, that dream of a multi-ethnic nation um, is, uh, is a magical one, but also a very uh, uh, evasive and, and difficult one to achieve. Mm -hmm. Uh, Deborah, let's talk uh, about some intersections you spoke with me about before the, the program today. Um, you said that we have to uh, speak about the intersections uh, in order to create social justice. What are those points of intersection? Absolutely. So um, there are many forms of identity, gender, race, sexuality, uh, different ableness, and part of what we try to get across in the op-ed and what we want to talk about today is the necessity to look at the intersections of identity. So when um, things of injustice happens or people don't have access to equality, it's not necessarily just about gender or just about race or just about class or just about sexuality, that it can be all of those things, that it can be two of those things uh, at the same time, and that it really is important to think about the ways in which class inequality is racialized, the way that different um, sexes, male, female, in between might experience discrimination and racism, right? So the discrimination that a woman of color um, might experience would have to do with gender and race, um, and maybe sexuality, maybe class, maybe ability. And by looking at all of those things um, together at once, we get a larger picture of inequality oftentimes. And if we just look at these things singularly, or if we pretend that these things don't matter, which is to say to talk about class without thinking about the ways in which different racial ethnic groups or um, you know, different genders experience class uh, inequality and to really let go of ideas of colorblindness insofar as looking at uh, inequality and to, to recognize issues such as um, not just white privilege, um, but the various privileges that we all have and the things that we can do perhaps to use those privileges at an advantage to help others um, instead of denying that they exist all together. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to talk about a few uh, terms. Um, what do we mean by racial fragility and gaslighting and projection as we talk about these issues? A great question. So there's many terms that we can sort of talk about, um, but the idea of racial fragility um, projecting and gaslighting really was uh, key 
to thinking about systems of equality. So biracial fragility, um, and this is not a term that we created as we mentioned in the op-ed. Um, others have talked about racial fragility. We cited a, um, a particular article by um, Robin D'Angelo that's really wonderful on um, racial fragility that you can find uh, online. Um, but it really means to describe or locate the ways in which people will use um, or project their insecurities um, onto other people. So it's a way to sort of think about um, why is it that when issues of race and discrimination are talked about that people feel uncomfortable about it? Um, do they feel uncomfortable because where they are located racially? Um, do you go into denial, dismissal, and avoidance when issues of race comes up? So there seems to be this sort of um, fragileness and this hesitance to really have honest and frank discussions about inequality. So a lot of times we don't have those discussions because of um, racial fragility. We don't want people to feel bad. We don't want them to feel personally implicated. So oftentimes we tend to tiptoe around individual responsibility for um, racist or discriminatory or prejudicial acts, however you want to phrase it. And so those real conversations never end up uh, happening. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to distill the complexity of uh, the term in a few minutes, um, but that really gets to some of the core mm -hmm. of, um, or some of the core of the, the idea of uh, fragility. And then we also talked about projection, which I, you know, I just minute, mentioned a couple minutes ago, this uh, tendency to project fantasies or desires onto others that maybe we're uncomfortable with or that we ourselves inhabit as a way to distance ourselves from those feelings, from those desires. Um, and so through projection, it absolves personal responsibility for prejudice um, and discrimination. And it puts others into a camp or a, a stream of being always already implicated in um, problematic acts, right? So it acts as a sort of distancing uh, process that um, we've seen has led to, as was mentioned in the earlier segment, um, unarmed people um, ending up um, being um, dead as a result of altercations um, between um, everyday people and law enforcement or um, between everyday people, sort of vigilante violence where people are projecting their fears and their desires onto others. And the result of that is um, violence, death, incarceration. And um, so this idea of fragility and projection and then gaslighting, we really do see as um, key to recognize and intervene in. And, and so gaslighting is a term that oftentimes is used in psychology. Um, we hear it a lot in uh, response to domestic violence, for example. So if you are the target of abuse, the abuser will say, well, you think you're being abused, or if you just wouldn't talk to me this way. Um, in terms of um, racial issues, sometimes there's discussions of, well, if you would get an education, or if you would act respectful or proper, or pull your pants up, no one would follow you in a store, or no one would want to harm you, or you wouldn't have these interactions um, with vigilantes or, or law enforcement. What, one of the things we tried to get across is that that is a way of blaming people who are the targets of abuse. And we need to ask different types of questions and act in different ways that doesn't deny abuse or um, make people think that 
the discrimination they experience is imaginary or uh, subjective, because again, that becomes another way to close off the conversation, right? And we can provide lots of examples of that. So for example, if someone were to say, we need a more diverse environment, and the response you might get is, well, I think we're fairly diverse. That's closing off the conversation, right? Or you want a diverse environment because you are representative of a historically marginalized group. So that's making it subjective, right? And not sort of thinking about how things like um, diversity and um, inclusion are important for everybody, not just historically marginalized groups. So we were really wanting to think about the ways in which these three terms, racial fragility, projection, and gaslighting work together to um, help discrimination um, and prejudice continue and being aware of it so that we can intervene in these practices and do and act better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, Rachel, how does the rise and fall of white supremacy in the country, um, what does it tell us about patterns of jailing and, and um, patterns of blame people of color? Sure. You know, I think one thing to be aware of is that the rhetoric people are so shocked by in this particular election is cyclical and that this rhetoric has happened repeatedly in this country at various times. You know, it's actually fairly easy to track. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, for example, the war on drugs, people always think, oh, the war on drugs is a fairly recent development. Well, actually, that's not true. And the rhetoric attached to the war on drugs is also not really a recent development. So, um, you know, in, eight, in the 1890s, Sears and Roebuck, for example, sold small amounts of cocaine and syringes. You know, Sears and Roebuck, it was a typical <laughs> thing, just like buying a Coca-Cola. Well, <laughs> So in 1914, the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act is passed, and the two parties that are singled out by this particular you know, act are cocaine and opiates. And then cocaine and opiates are then attached to two particular groups of people. So cocaine was attached to African-American men in the South, and they said, oh, those African-American men are doing lots of, they're sniffing coke. Right? And that's making them want, literally want to rape white women, this was the rhetoric, and to shoot pistols. Okay? And so this feeds into this idea of armed black men are dangerous, and their primary goal is to rape white women. Okay? So the other group that the opium was attached to were Chinese immigrants. Okay? So these are the two, these suddenly become the two dangerous groups. You know? And they're further endangered, you know, they're further endangering the public by drugs. Okay? So the war on drugs is not new. And the rhetoric attached to the war on drugs, you know, super predators, welfare queens, you know, all of this is just a repeat of what's mm -hmm. happened in the past. So, you know, these kinds of images have happened before. Um, so the, the rhetoric that you heard Donald Trump and the white nationalists using during the election is just recycled. You know, this mm -hmm. has happened before. And the same thing happened, you know, you talked about, I've heard the prison industrial complex mm -hmm. kicked around a lot tonight. And, for those of you that are not familiar with that term, the prison industrial complex represents prisons sort of intersecting with private industrial um, capitalism. Okay, so prison labor, for example, after um, emancipation, prison labor, there suddenly you know, grew these large prison camps in the South, and people in those prison camps rebuilt you know, the South. There, the South was rebuilt on the backs of their labor. Well, then what happened was people began to get this brilliant idea that we will lease convict labor in order to do particular things, to do dirty work. Now, 
we think that this is past, but the, the oil spill that recently happened in Louisiana, guess who's cleaning that up? You know, people who are incarcerated. So this still goes on. The military, many things that are made by the military that are bought from private industry, those things are made by people who are incarcerated. People who are incarcerated make, you know, products for Walmart, have made products for Victoria's Secret, have worked for AT&T and call centers, and these people get paid very small amounts. So if we talk about how labor is distributed, that's one way to think about it. The other thing about prison, and this also goes back to this election and goes back to how to control um, people of color, okay? So if you look at the population in the country right now, um, African Americans and Latinos make up about 28%, a little over 28% of the people in this country. And I'm really bad with numbers, so if that's not quite right, please, <laughs> I apologize. I'm not a math person. Um, but if you look at people who are incarcerated, about 58% of those people are African American and Latino, okay? So there's obviously a tremendous disconnect here. The other thing to think about is how these populations and how prison, how the rise of prison has happened. So since 1970, the populations of our prison has increased sevenfold. Okay, so as the prison population has risen, and you were talking about access to, you know, just education, the access to mental health care has, has dropped, access for people who are unsheltered to resources has dropped. So now the prison has become this catch-all for people with, you know, if you are, things that put you at risk for going to prison, being a person of color, okay, puts you at risk for going to prison. Having a mental illness puts you at risk for going to prison, okay? Um, if you are impoverished, this puts you at risk for going to prison. If you live in a poor neighborhood, in an urban setting, this puts you at risk for going to prison. None of those things are connected to crime. The other thing that puts you at risk for going to prison is addiction. Okay, so now we suddenly see how the war on drugs gets hooked into incarcerating people. Okay, so addiction is a disease. Um, there has been numerous, you know, studies that say addiction is a disease. It is not something people necessarily choose. You know, you don't choose, no one wants to choose to be addicted to anything. So those are all risk factors for going to prison. And I think, you know, and now I've kind of lost my train of thought, but if you think about people in prison and you think about ways to control um, people of color and you think about the changing population, prison is one of the most lucrative ways to do that, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And people in prison, you know, people say, oh, but they're training for jobs. Let's talk about the jobs that are available to you when you get out of prison. So I've worked with wonderful men at the Hope House who are trying to rebuild their lives, okay. They will fill out hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, of job applications, but they have to check that box that says I'm a felon. So not only are they punished for going to prison, not only do they lose their voting rights, not only are they continuously punished by having no access to federal funds related to education, which is now changing, but I guarantee you that's going to swing back. Um, they do not have access to housing, adequate housing, and they can't get jobs. So then guess where, what happens? They, they can't fulfill the requirements that they're supposed to meet in the halfway house. They can't get jobs. The job training that they got in prison is not helping them at all, you know? And so then they end up back in prison. So it's a horrendous, horrendous cycle. And if you can't vote, you know, if we're incarcerating, if 58% of the people that are incarcerated are people of color, that's, those are people that never get their voting rights back, right? 
And someone else was talking earlier about voter ID, you know, and, mm -hmm. and voting rights. Mm -hmm. If you talk about how hard it is just to get an ID, you know, in some states, if you want to go to the Department of Transportation, so Alabama, for example, there are counties where you have to drive six counties to get to a Department of Transportation, which means you have to take the day off work, which means you have to sit in line and hope you can get through that line, right? So these are all real impediments to voters. Mm -hmm. The other thing is the argument for um, having these very strict voter ID laws has to do with voter fraud. Voter fraud is a myth. It is an mm -hmm. absolute myth. I think there's only been, I mean, I can't even tell you the number mm -hmm. of cases. Are, it's tiny. I could probably mm -hmm. count it on one mm -hmm. hand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of these things are part of what's happened. So all that's to say is that the rhetoric that we're hearing that mm -hmm. so many people are shocked by and crying and upset about has been happening in this country for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important. History plays a huge role in educating people and making people recognize hey, we've had this monster on our doorstep before. Mm -hmm. And so when people say, what can we do about it? You know, I think one, get educated. You know, figure out what history has done in the past and how people have combated that. I think mm -hmm. the other thing too is to, to stretch your social imagination. You know, and so in, um, in uh, there's a, oh, what is it? Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Oh yeah. He talks about social proximity. And so I think that's the other thing in this election that you don't see is that some people had a low context, you know, for people of color. Some people have a low context for people who are LGBTQI. Some people have a low context for, you know, different kinds of women um, or women who, you know, might work, for example, or women mm -hmm. who are career oriented. So if you have a low context, your social imagination is not going to be as plastic as if you mm -hmm. have a high context, as if you interact with different kinds of people on a daily basis and your social imagination is engaged and you can understand to some degree or even begin to imagine what must that feel like, you know, to be called mm -hmm. a name that I didn't name myself. Mm -hmm. You know, what must that feel like to be discriminated against mm -hmm. or even hurt or have the possibility of being killed every time someone who's supposed to protect me pulls me over. So those are, those are just uh, some thoughts, you know, I have in terms of history and mm -hmm. how history has played a role in all of these things. Yeah. yeah. Could we look just for a second and it, it, at women specifically and this issue of privilege and structural racism? Um, how, how do those things impact women? Well, you know, it's really interesting. If you go back to the suffragettes, right, there was this idea that if women could vote, suddenly women would actually be able to participate in public office because women would vote for other women. Well, the reality is, and we saw this played out again, time and time again, women vote the same way that people they are sleeping with vote, right? And this is a problem. I mean, this is a real problem. Um, and so, and the other thing, too, to think about, you know, and I'll show my cards here, Hillary Clinton is one of the most qualified people that has ever run for president. You know, one of the most qualified. And the rhetoric that was used against her was absolutely ludicrous. You know, she has been under so much scrutiny, so much more than any other politician that's run. And here she is, she is beat by someone who is a narcissist, someone who is not particularly um, sophisticated in the way that they think about things, you know, and someone who has done this, they've courted, um, you know, groups of people who have been marginalized. You know, and the other thing is, um, Lauren, you brought up about people sort of holding their noses and voting, you know, and I think that they've swapped their dignity in some way and voted for things that are quite evil, you know, mm -hmm. quite terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, when you say to someone, 
you realize people that are affiliated with the, with the Klan have endorsed this person. They say, oh, yeah, but, you know. And I think that's just outright denial. So I think when you talk about women, you know, gender is going to play a huge role, and it's going to continue to play a huge role. And one of the things that Donald Trump did so beautifully, he put poor people, poor white people, against people of color. So he split people that way. That's, been, that's a game that's been played repeatedly. That has been played over and over and over in politics in this country. And so, you know, gender plays a huge role in that. Um, and, you know, if women are going to vote the same way that people they sleep with vote, you know, we're always going to have a deficit in the way. And, and I also think, you know, women, how women construct other women can be very problematic, you know. So, I think gender plays a huge role in yeah. this, and I think gender, women, people were threatened by the fact that Hillary Clinton was a woman. I would just like to um, mm -hmm. agree with um, just about all of that, um, but again, I would like to look at things intersectionally. Um, mm -hmm. So there's women and gender, and then there's um, other forms of identity um, that can intersect with that, right? Um, so, you know, this is not to be a proponent for um, any political candidate, um, but we know that the large percentage of um, women who voted for Hillary Clinton were African-American women. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that had to do, who, had to do with who they were sleeping with necessarily, um, as much as they saw that candidate being aligned with issues of mm -hmm. social justice. Um, that maybe, you know, for that demographic that voted for uh, her did not feel that um, other candidates represented uh, as much. Um, but I do think we need to be careful about um, talking about these categories in isolation and thinking that just because someone's a woman, they're going to be more predisposed to helping other women because we know that there's a, there was a large amount of white women, as I think you were suggesting, um, who, who did not vote for Hillary Clinton, not saying that they necessarily you know, needed to, um, but um, it's not just about being a woman or a woman candidate or a woman in power or a person of color in power, but there's larger issues of social justice that we can't necessarily um, attach to someone's class or, or mm -hmm. gender um, or race. So that's just to say we, we do need to continue to think and talk about these things um, in an intersectional way. So there's never just women mm -hmm. or, or gender. Um, it's, it's more complex than that. And the experience of a woman of color or someone who's disenfranchised by class is going to be um, oftentimes not always different um, than a white woman who um, is in a more privileged um, space because of class, because of region, because of um, being a particular position of power or education. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. But I, I do think it's interesting you could look at the fallout. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump is a misogynist. I mean, I, there's no doubt. Every, every bit of evidence points to that. You know? mm -hmm. And if you look at the people he's appointed, there was a point in the, when the New York Times began to talk about when the Republican party turned their back. And so they had this beautiful timeline. And certain Republicans, you know, turned their back on him when he said things about, um, you know, people from Mexico. Certain people, certain Republicans turned their back, you know, when he said uh, things, when he made fun of the reporter who was differently abled. So there's this thing, but suddenly, you know, when the, the incident happened with the woman and um, he was talking about particular parts of her body that he wanted to grow, and I think you know what I'm referring to, all of these men turned their back. So everything was, you know, kind of not good, but okay, not good, but okay. But suddenly when white women were threatened, 
all of these traditional white Republican men said, oh, this is too much. And again, that's historical. But Deborah, I think you're absolutely right that, that um, you know, you do have to think about different people are coming from different places and they have different positions and different kinds of privileges in different settings. I think I'm so glad you mentioned that and I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Know if we have time for this. We've mm -hmm. been talking a lot about elect the election um, and different candidates. One of the things that um, Lauren Glass and I wanted to get across in our op-ed is um, we are faced with the outcome that has happened. Mm -hmm. um, but there are individual things that people can do despite who is president or who is mm -hmm. in control. Um, and so you do have control over how you treat other people, how you interact with people. Do you? intervene in systems of domination and privilege? Mm -hmm. Do you try to change it or do you acquiesce to it? Do you mm -hmm. um, uh, benefit from it knowingly or, or unknowingly? Mm -hmm. And so wanting to be cognizant of not making issues of racism and prejudice and discrimination so removed or something that's always about a larger project that's not individualized. So I think sometimes we want racism without racist, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that's not mm -hmm. possible, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We talk about the media, the media is doing this, the media is doing that. We are the media, people make up the media. Um, so there is an amount of personal responsibility that I think is um, really important and then moving from that to um, the, the collective, but definitely looking inwardly and self-reflexively about how to bring change about mm -hmm. and um, going back to the terms of racial fragility and projection and gaslighting, um, being careful to um, think about things at the mm -hmm. local, global, mm -hmm. individual, collective level. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to um, elaborate on a really useful thing I think that Rachel um, indicated in her little history, in, the, well, in that history that you gave there, which is that when you're talking about institutional and structural racism, a lot of these phenomena and these policies are interlaced and interconnected so that there are ways to act which might not seem directly relevant to this but will really help. Legalizing cannabis, great thing. Changing drug laws, encouraging more money into public schools, which is where people get to stretch their social imaginations a little bit, or at least hopefully um, in places like this. Fighting for better care for mental health. There's all sorts of policies that um, we can fight for and struggle for and vote for uh, and encourage our uh, political representatives to endorse that may not seem directly related to structural racism, but in fact are, right? So a lot of those uh, folks who are in prison and who contribute to that disproportion um, in terms of the demographics are just victimless crimes, drug crimes that, that I would get off on, that, that I would just be, be able to walk right out, right? So um, there's all sorts of other issues which are interlaced into here, um, which we can uh, fight to, uh, you know, fight to um, improve. Wow, another really interesting conversation, and thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Lauren Glass and Rachel Williams and Deborah Whaley. Really uh, good to have you here with us tonight, and I hope all of you listening can stay with us for the third segment, where we're going to look beyond our own borders and examine the rise of cultural nationalism and um, get an international perspective on discussions about race. Uh, World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and thank you very much for joining us.
Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we are broadcasting from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol. Happy to have you join us for this program on white privilege, structural racism, and the dream of America. In this section, we're going to take a look at an international uh, reference point or two as we talk about race and privilege. And joining me here on stage are Jennifer Sessions, Associate Professor in the University of Iowa Department of History. Thank you, Jennifer. Next to her is Annie Curtius, Associate Professor in the UI Department of French and Italian. Thanks for being here. As I said, we'd like to just spend a little time looking around the globe at the rise of far-right political movements, the backlash against immigrants and perceived outsiders, cultural nationalism and racism in the post-colonial era. Uh, Jennifer, you say that the American experience with structural racism and white privilege is particular but not unique. Uh, tell me what you mean by that. Well, every history is specific. So um, I wouldn't say that United, American history was, was not um, special. The history of slavery, the history of indentured servitude, the history of immigration in this country has, has particular contours. But I think it's also important to remember that the, the founding and the growth of the United States is part of a larger global history of Western imperialism, and that the the settlers who came here and founded this country were part of a longer history of, uh, of European colonization of other parts of the world. Um, and so if we look at the, the European empires in, in other places, if we, if we look at Latin America, if we look at Africa, if we look at Australia, um, if we look at East Asia, we find very similar patterns of forced labor, of forced migration, of uh, the confiscation and redistribution of land to white settlers from Europe. Um, and so it's, a, it's a, I think, a, a useful lens for thinking about American history. It was uh, mentioned earlier that one of the barriers to talking about racism and discrimination and inequality is the the defensiveness that people who enjoy the privileges of those things benefit from. Um, as someone who studies European history, I actually I find it very useful to shift uh, to shift perspective and and to look at the way that some of these things played out in other parts of the world, um, which allows us to see sometimes structures that are at work without necessarily having the sense of self implicated. Um, and then we can step back and say that this is actually, this is a shared experience um, that minorities in, uh, in other places have also experienced. Um, so I think that's the, the first thing to say is that American history is part of a, an imperial history um, that, is, that is larger than, than North America. Mm -hmm. And studying those um, inequalities in other places can, can help us understand the way that they work here. So uh, in the intro, I said we might talk about the rise of far-right parties and, and some of the um, changes maybe in the social, um, um, uh, I don't know if this is the right term to use, but the, the complexion of a country, the, the immigrants who've come in in post-colonial times to certain countries that, that um, perceive themselves as, as being white before the others came. Help us understand what's happened there. Well, so the... the, the the, the very short version of the story is that 
empires don't end with decolonization. So the, the conquests that, that European countries made in the, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries um, gave way to independent countries, mostly by the, by the 1950s and 1960s. Um, but those relationships didn't end. And um, in, in the European context, uh, one of the most important uh, vectors of continuity was large-scale migration from formerly colonized countries to Europe that, um, that really did change the demographic makeup of European societies very dramatically. Um, so countries in, in Europe today, um, it's estimated if we look at the, the Western European countries at, at least, you know, between 10 and 20% of the population is um, either first or second generation immigrants, um, and large numbers of those are from Africa, the Middle East, um, East Asia. So, so there is a, a diversity of population now in Europe um, that is relatively new. And the challenge for, for Europeans has been to find ways to think about the, the diversity now in Europe in ways that don't draw directly on the racial categories that were developed during the colonial era, because I think that's, that's really been um, a major change that challenges the ways of thinking about self, the ways of thinking about national identity um, that had developed in Europe in a colonial context, where, where what it meant to be British, or what it meant to be French, or what it meant to be German was largely defined in opposition to colonized people. So, so to be European was to not be African, not be enslaved, not be Indian, not be Hindu, not be Muslim, not be an Aboriginal person. Um, the default then, or what's left, is white and Christian. But they never said that. Um, they, there was a, it was a negative image of self. Um, and now the arrival of people who are come from all of those things that Europeans spent centuries telling themselves they were not um, has forced them to try at least to rethink um, what that means. And the rise of the far right that we've seen, um, particularly since the middle of the 1980s and has taken off in, in really dramatic and quite honestly frightening ways, um, just in the last two years, is, is a product of the difficulty of that process. So these right-wing parties, which, which range from sort of populist ultranationalism to overtly neo-fascist, um, nonetheless have a shared platform of xenophobia, uh, anti-immigration positions, Islamophobia, um, and anti-globalization, which they identify with the European Union. Um, and so the, the, these parties that were pretty marginal um, in, the, in the 80s and the 90s uh, have suddenly begun to gain enormous amounts of electoral ground, really um, since 2013, 2014, um, in response to the, uh, the terrorist attacks in, that have taken place in Europe in the last 10 years or so, um, which has really increased the, the focus on Islam. And I think one of maybe the differences between Europe and the United States is the way that thinking about race and immigration in Europe 
the, the, um, the, today at least, that's really equated with thinking about Islam and thinking about Muslims. Um, and Islam has been racialized in, in Europe in a way that is, I think, less so um, in the United States. But, um, but the, the, the rise of Islamist, Islamist terror has ratcheted up the, the Islamophobic element um, and the Syrian refugee crisis since 2014. Um, there are over a million Syrian refugees seeking asylum in Europe right now. Um, and the far right parties have, um, have basically argued that um, this, is, this is a threat of demographic genocide um, for white Christian Europe and, and that the European Union is allowing this to happen. And so the only way to save Europe is to close the borders, um, close down the free circulation within the European Union, and possibly dissolve the European Union altogether. So this was really clear in the, the British referendum last summer on what they call Brexit, the British exit from Euro the unified um, Europe, where the campaign was fought almost entirely on the question of immigration and refugees, um, neither of which have anything to do with Britain's membership in the European Union, because Britain does not belong to the Schengen zone in which free circulation of people is allowed. Um, so Brexit actually will not change anything for Britain in terms of how people can legally enter the country. Um, but I think it, it is very um, telling that this is, the, this is sort of the platform on which they're making a stand. Um, and there are major elections coming up. Um, the far-right candidate actually lost the presidential election in Austria this past Sunday. Um, the, uh, a referendum in Italy was defeated, and that's being interpreted as an anti-Europe, anti-immigration vote. Um, and there are big elections coming up in, in the next six months in Germany and in France where we're gonna really see um, how this plays out. Yeah. So Angela Merkel led, led um, a great deal of the, um, uh, the, the, the drive to bring in uh, immigrants from Syria, refugees trying to come in, and, and Germany really, to many people's surprise, opened its arms. And it, I think at first, the, many people in the world thought, wow, this is really wonderful. Of course, thinking back 70 years to a different situation in the Second World War. And, um, and I know that there was, even at that time, uh, a lot of concern about, you know, where will these people live? How will this change Germany? But she has managed, it seems, to maintain some level of, of security in her position, it seems to me. Do you think that's true, or in the next election, is she likely to? I think her position is, is tricky right now. Um, so Angela Merkel, who's the, the prime minister in Germany, um, really did sort of take the most uh, open position in terms of allowing Syrian refugees into Europe. Um, and the vast majority of those million asylum seekers are in Germany. Um, she has paid a big price for that, actually. Her, her party, the, the, the state in Germany, the province that she's from, had provincial elections um, shortly after um, this, this position really sort of became very, very publicly identified with Merkel. And the German far-right party, the Alternative for Deutschland, won those elections. Um, or came in 
had a plurality, I guess, 25% of the vote. Um, so it's unclear. And, and Merkel herself, um, just I think two days ago, came out in support of a ban on Muslim women veiling fully in public in an attempt to recoup some of that far-right vote. Because there are some cultural issues. I mean, immigration aside, there are some cultural issues that have been really central in these European debates um, around Islam. And, and the sort of the primary one is, um, going back to the question of intersectionality, is, is Muslim women and, and the veiling, the, the clothing choices of Muslim women. Some of you may have um, seen the, the kerfuffle last summer about uh, burkinis and whether or not only Muslim women can wear full-length clothing on the beach because everyone else is fine. Um, uh, but so, so veiling is, is, a, is an issue, and she has suddenly shifted to the, to the far-right position on this. Um, so these far-right parties, as they have begun to gain electoral ground, mainstream parties on the right and the left have, have started to move in that direction. Um, it doesn't seem like a very good strategy because it's not actually doing any of them any good electorally. Um, it just increases the vote share of the far right um, and normalizes those positions. But it seems to be the way things are going right now. Well, Ani, uh, I'd like to turn to you. And um, the U.S. has historically, sometimes anyway, offered refuge to refugees, people suffering different kinds of uh, discrimination and whatnot in, in other countries. And um, conversely, certain um, populations that were having a tough time in the United States have been able to go to Europe and find a better life for themselves there. It's a historical contradiction in some way. Yeah, um, I think that what we could actually, um, the, the way we should actually think about this um, uh, intersectionality, this uh, passage between from one side of the Atlantic to the other, uh, is, uh, as you just said, um, yeah, you have people escaping, you know, religious um, persecution, in Europe, and then coming to the United States and forming, you know, the the, the, the stock, so to speak, of of this of of this uh, of this country. Um, but then on the other side, you also have in the 1920s and the 1930s um, African Americans who uh, needed to escape racial segregation. Here in, the, here in the U.S., and they find uh, Europe, and most, most of them found um, um, Paris as a safe haven. And um, what is very interesting is that we might wonder what they gained ultimately from, that, uh, from their stay in, in Europe. But before we actually talk about those exiled African-American intellectuals, we actually need to think about uh, war. Uh, world War I, World War II, when uh, African-American uh, soldiers uh, fought heroically those two wars, and all of a sudden realized that the foundation of uh, the colonial ideology saying that 
black males were um, incapable of being heroic, incapable of fighting a common white enemy alongside with uh, white soldiers, uh, and that they were um, savage, you know, all this, you know, the, the, all those myths that sustain the colonial ideology. All of a sudden, they realize that they are actually capable of fighting and being heroic and doing something great. So they, so they deconstruct the, 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 this, this, this colonial ideology. So that's one, what one thing, that's at the level of the war. Culturally speaking, to get back to what I was saying earlier, um, so the, those exiled African-American writers, County Cullen, um, Claude McKay, Richard Wright, the founders of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, they go to, to Paris and they realize that all of a sudden there is some sort of a freedom, a freedom to speak, a freedom to exist, which was not uh, possible in the US. And um, so that's one thing. And on the other side, they all of a sudden find themselves in connection with a larger uh, African diaspora. Um, intellectuals coming from the French Caribbean, coming from, uh, from Sub-Saharan Africa. They're students, they're in Paris. And they do realize that the racism that, um, that, that they experience is not the same. The methodology is different. But there is one common ground, there is a similarity, is that there is invisibility, uh, there is this profound stereotype that keeps uh, thinking about the black person as being inferior to the white person. So they realize that there are those similarities, even though the methodology is different. And then um, there is this discovery of Africa. Okay, So there is this, this, this new awareness of what the African continent can really mean for them. So, also, so those exiled African-American writers, along with, um, and artists as well, along with um, this, this, this large um, diaspora of intellectuals, they come together, and it's at this point that the movement of negritude is really powerful. It, it, there is this emergence of a race consciousness, of a black internationalism, of and it's at the time when Pan-Africanism is uh, really going full swing. So, so, so what is really important here to, to, to look at is that, um, and I actually want to go back to the question that I was asking, what do they gain from this, uh, from being all of a sudden in, uh, in Europe in contact with all those intellectuals uh, coming from different places from the African diaspora, I believe that it was an individual solution. All of a sudden, they realized that they were able to get some awareness of who they were and how they could individually fight a bigger problem that was existing in the US. And, and that reminds me this this very famous line by W.E.B. Du Bois, who says that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. 
So the, the color line for those exiled African-American writers is precisely this impossibility to, to, to move from one side to the other, whereas for the, for, the, for, the African, for the African diaspora living in, studying and living in, 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 in France, for example, or in other parts of Europe, it's not so much the same idea of the segregation happening here in the US, but it's, it's a different type of color line, you know? And the other thing also that's very interesting is that wh when the, ex the exiled African-American intellectuals and artists um, are in France, and I'm talking a lot about France because a lot of this intellectual activity happened there, okay? I'm not just trying to be Franco-centric here, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, what is interesting is that the African-American writers are perceived in Europe as coming from a powerful country. Okay, so in a way, the, the notion of blackness is different. It's as if they would all of a sudden pass for white because they come from this powerful U.S. country that everybody is looking at. Okay, so, 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 so there are all those different elements that need to be taken into consideration here. And, and one great um, book that I would suggest is uh, Banjo by Claude McKay. And the subtitle of the, of the novel is really interesting. It's a story without a plot. And it's really a story without a plot. There, is, there isn't much really happening in, in, in the novel. But Claude McKay, he writes the novel in the 1920s, at the end of the 1920s, and he's in Marseille, and he's um, looking at all those people coming from all those places. And the novel is really about errancy. It's about this character, Banjo, who plays the banjo, and who observes all those people and who is trying to construct some kind of a global awareness of what blackness means. And, um, and Banjo is very interesting because he is um, um, in the, he's African American and he's going to try to pass for an immigrant and so that he can be deported and cross the Atlantic and arrive in France for free, okay? So that's, that's, what, what, that's really interesting. So, and he actually ends up you know, arriving in, in, uh, in France um, as a deported, so to speak, uh, immigrant. And um, in a way, Banjo embodies you know, all, those, all this errancy that Claude McKay himself you know, went through. And he went to, to the UK, he went to uh, Russia, and he was profoundly disillusioned by socialism. So, so, so there is, um, I think, um, some kind of an errancy, uh, some kind of a black Atlantic errancy happening, and that makes um, all those writers, those intellectuals, being aware of something. Um, they're black. There is a stereotype. There is a, a founding myth that says that they're inferior, and they need to find some sort of a, some sort of a connection, some sort of a, um, a awareness of, of what they are. And I think that we might actually really dig into what contemporary, in co contemporary Europe, what young 
people, young people of North African and Black, um, Sub-Saharan African, you know, uh, origins, um, think about themselves. If they really draw from those particular movements that happened in early uh, 19, um, early 20th century, um, because in the long way, we might actually, to go back to Du Bois' sentence, say that maybe that the problem of the 21st century is again the problem of the color line. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, um, you know, you mentioned in an earlier message we had shared that there is a Black Lives Matter France. Can you give us a little um, insight into how this operates yeah. within France? Yeah, and actually I'm going to kind of tie um, what I just said uh, about the problem of the 21st century being probably, again, the problem of the color line. Um, Black Lives Matter France is just recent. Mm -hmm. um, and as a matter of fact, they're called Black Lives Matter France. They don't have a French name. Mm -hmm. um, and the movement emerged out of Again, the sad reality of police brutality. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe uh, that it's about, uh, that the movement emerged out of a particular side story of a young man of uh, sub-Saharan uh, African descent who died while he was in custody. Um, there were several uh, uh, autopsies, autopsies that were made and one of them actually revealed that he died of asphyxia and probably because the way he was badly treated by the police ended up, you know, um, causing the death. So, of course, we all think about I can't breathe, okay, mm -hmm. the I can't breathe problem that occurred, you know, here in New York. So, um, so Black Lives Matter friends kind of actually emerged out of that kind of um, similarity police brutality of both sides of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, they're kind of, I would say, they don't have a website so far, just like Black Lives Matter in the US have one. The methodology, the, 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 the vocabulary, the, the, I would say that they, they, they're still kind of looking at what's happening in the US to kind of frame some sort of a, a, a method to, to exist. Um, of course, we might wonder why they, they keep the same name and why they did not, for example, get some inspiration from earlier movements mm -hmm. in, um, in France uh, that existed like SOS racism, um, the movement of the indigène. So we might wonder why there is this, this kind of a look at what's happening, uh, I mean, at, um, yeah, what's happening in the US and taking the name itself. But I think that the reason why they look at, um, they look at Black, Black Lives Matter US, uh, it's because those young people, when they look at what's happening in the US, they, they see, they are black journalists, they are black stars, there are no Don Lemon, Queen Eiffel, Bernard Shaw in France. So they look at what's up, what they get through TV and they see that there is some sort of a success. Mm -hmm. And there is also the fact that 
uh, after the civil rights movement, uh, one, I think one of the major things that happened out of the civil rights movement is affirmative action. In France, there isn't really some sort of affirmative action, you know, policy happening. Uh, in the 1980s, there was uh, a movement started by um, the offsprings of the North African, um, the, the North African population who came to work in France in the 1960s. There was a movement for equality. But I don't think that nothing really happened out of this movement in the 1980s. There was no, so to speak, a, an affirmative action program that was kind of on the table and that the politicians need to take care of. So there was, all of, there was all of a sudden some kind of a hole, some kind of a blank, nothing happening. So Black Lives Matter French people look at the US and they, not naively or maybe naively, I, I don't know, uh, looking at the U.S. and say, well, things can probably work well there, so why, why, why don't we take some of this methodology and try to apply it to our own existence? And, and probably this is also the same thing that's happening with hip-hop and rap. Um, uh, a rapper named Kerry James, um, you might Google him uh, and you will see you know, what, what he's doing. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, Kerry James talks about his music as uh, some sort of a poetics of condition. So for him, the idea of existing as a black man in France and being in constant um, in, in a constant situation where he has to prove himself, he has to be visible because there is this kind of invisibility that is there and that is, that, that, that constantly asks him to prove himself as a French citizen. So, um, so, so I think that Black Lives Matter France wants to get some sort of a sense of what's happening here, try to apply it, and also, start a, discu a discussion about race, because talking about racist friends is some sort of a taboo, still. Because in France, you, the system wants to see things along the notion of class, more than race. And there are no ethnic statistics in France, which in a way is a good thing, because as a as citizen, everybody is supposed to be treated the same way. Everybody is supposed to be equal because we're all human beings. But on the other hand, without those ethnic statistics, there isn't really a sense of what needs to be done in terms of a serious, intelligent discussion about race. And it's exactly the same thing happening, I've, I suppose, also in the university system where people would be more comfortable talking about gender they're okay with gender, yeah. But talking about race is still very difficult, I believe. So the far right does not like gender either. They are mobilizing to get gender theory banned from French schools. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
This has been, again, such an interesting conversation. Thank you, Ani Curtius and Jennifer Sessions for, for uh, rounding out our program. And uh, thank you, all of you, for joining us this evening. And, and uh, as you know, this World Campus program and all of the other programs we do uh, will be available on YouTube, on iTunes, and the International Programs website. Um, I invite you to join us for the next program, a uh, different topic, Our Lives Online, is uh, the next program. Uh, that's January 17th in the Voxman Music Building and we'll have a nice reception before the program starting at 6.30. So I hope some of you can join us for that. Thank you very much for being here, and thanks to all of our guests. Good night. Thank you.